Alrighty, well, welcome back everyone. Today we'll be moving away from the kind of interview format a bit and hopping into like a book review of sorts. So the book that I'm going to be covering the next few weeks served as sort of an inspiration for this podcast in the first place due to it bearing a kind of similar namesake, but also in the kind of content that it covers and that I also hope to cover, you know, in the podcast. Uh, the book itself is called Escape Velocity, and it was written by Mark Derry, a cultural critic known for his analysis of new media and fringe culture. He dives into the electrifying world of high-tech subcultures, from the intertwining of technology and psychedelics in the hippie movement of the 60s, to the cyberpunk aesthetic imbued within the culture of the millennium transition. Escape Velocity serves as an overwhelmingly provocative take on a phenomena that we are still in the midst of to this day. In this initial episode, we'll be covering the introduction in Chapter 1, which in general covers a lot of the things I just mentioned, but particularly the ways that the 60s counterculture paved the way for this kind of modern internet age, while at the same time providing a critique of the sort of inaction that's arisen from the quote-unquote, freedom-loving individuals of the day. So, uh, to start, I think it's important to lay the groundwork of the history of the internet because it helps to paint a vivid picture of how this sort of immersive, connected network came about. The internet, as we know it, was developed at the University of California, Los Angeles in 1969. The The project itself was called ARPANET, a decentralized computer network designed for DARPA, which stands for Department of Defense's Advanced Projects Agency. Some of you might know about this for a variety of reasons, but the use of it initially was to provide military communications in the event of a nuclear attack. What strikes me, though, is that it's sort of an anarchic global network of networks, uh, just decentralized just at its base, which is pretty interesting to me. Yet, As we've seen, it's grown to a scale that nobody could have expected. Um, And to quote Derry, an estimated 30 million internet users in more than 137 countries traverse the electronic geography of what the science fiction novelist William Gibson has called cyberspace, an imaginary space that exists entirely inside a computer. And their ranks are growing by as many as a million a month. Particularly fascinating is the onset of the World Wide Web which truly laid the groundwork for the system we inhabit today. The World Wide Web, invented by Tim Berners-Lee and Robert Caillot, is an information system where documents and other web resources are identified by uniform resource locators. Most of you know those as like URLs, which are then interlinked between each other through hyperlinks, which are accessible all across the internet. This development has enabled users across the globe to easily click from one site to another, ingesting whatever media format they say fit. But this wasn't always how things were, so I think it's best we go back in history a bit. Derry, the author, quoting the comedian Philip Proctor, opens the first chapter, Turn On, Boot Up, Jack in Cyberdelia, with the 90s are just the 60s upside down. Derry notes that the reasoning for this is the renewed interest in psychedelics, avant-garde art, and anti-work ethos, and much more. Oddly enough, I I feel like we're kind of approaching that phase today, even, Um, mainly because of like musicians and artists are espousing their support and inspiration from psychedelics, 
I mean, internet art is becoming ever more popular through NFTs and social media. And I mean, there's a general fuck the system attitude that even I share, you know, and I think a lot of, you know, my peers also share, you know, while all that is fascinating and exciting on some level, the parallels don't stop there. And fact of the matter is all three of these eras have come with instability and insurrection. The analysis of this juxtaposition throughout the chapter enlightens ways in which we can tackle the issues of today and seeing where certain ideas took root. A positive outlook on the new tech wave and the sort of individualistic focus is that the focus is on freedom. To some, the only way to truly have freedom is to not have an agenda, even going so far to say that protests and ideological positioning are not creative acts and in the end actually restrict freedom. And social irresponsibility to them is something that offers, you know, a vision and expansion away from the status quo that to them has left so many destitute. Uh, a quote I liked a lot was that there were, ten- beginning of the quote, there were tensions galore between the radical idea of political strategy with discipline, organization, commitment to results out there at a distance and the countercultural idea of living life to the fullest right here for oneself, or for the part of the universe embodied in oneself, for the community of the enlightened who are capable of loving one another and the rest of the world be damned, which sadly seem to be damned already. This, The attitude of this age remained after the generation came and went and continues to exert its fascination on today's kids. People m- may wonder where all those hippies went, but their ideas still lay dormant. You know, kind of like deeply buried perennials, you know, waiting to awaken at any moment. So I believe today that we see those flowers blooming, not through the traditional like love child way of the 60s, but through a, a revolutionary, technologically influenced global consciousness that has arisen through the minds of those inspired by those exact people back in the 60s. Some of the newer generation believes that individuals with a puritanical mistrust of money and sensual pleasure who also harbor an obsessive anti-tech bias, has left them feeling increasingly powerless in an accelerating techno-culture. However, this positivist and somewhat exclusionary view is not shared by everyone. Some believe that this attitude is privileged, selfish, consumer-oriented, and technologically dependent, and therefore elitist and classist in nature. To turn on and drop out did not challenge the system that was hurting so many people. Instead, they viewed it as fueling it and distracting people away from their own subversive potential. Most of the people that became highly interested in this technological culture were sufficiently insulated from the grimmer social reality. Sorry if I stumble over my words. It's kind of something I do. Uh, But anyways... Inside their high-tech comfort zones, it was easy for them to see the power of like a positive hedonism. And fact of the matter, most of these people were successful business people in the computer industry and were rich. So it made it exponentially easier to have the money to indulge their taste for high-end quality techno gear. Uh, And echoing the words of Walter Kern, an American novelist, literary critic, and essayist, What the Siberians appear fated to learn from their ventures into pure electronic consciousness is that ultimate detachment is not the same as freedom. Escape is no substitute for liberation, 
and rapture is not happiness. The sound and light show at the end of time, long for by these turned-on nerds, seem bound to disappear and disappoint. And, you know, I, I can definitely see that. Um, it's definitely something that I've thought about, you know. It's like I find myself, you know, spending a lot of time on the computer and thinking and, you know, browsing social media, not really like, you know, going out and protesting uh, or, you know, engaging in direct action as much as I should. Uh, but in the end, though, I still think it this whole phenomena itself is, you know, like awe-inspiring, you know. It, it, it's something that, like, I think often it's like this didn't used to exist at all, you know. But there was no internet, even like computers at some point in time. It's like there was a level of connectivity that just wasn't there. And I think like now it's like, we're so far detached from that sort of organic experience that it almost seems like unnatural. It's like you're going back to the stone age to try and live a life like that. Um, but yeah, I mean, despite the downsides from this transition, you know, it, this whole thing is not something to be taken lightly. And Mark Derry in the book shares this sentiment as well. You know, what I especially like, is how he was pointing out how this whole thing is actually quite analogous to a hallucinatory experience, um, which which I especially liked, you know, in his words, you know, from the soft swatches of moving colors, hypnotic pulsating mandalas, psychedelized fractals, surreal film imagery, computer animation, and advanced film graphics. It all is such a, you know, a mind-warping experience. You know, I, I mean, I can definitely attest to that. I, th I think it's a, it just seems like it's always coming at you, whether you like it or not. And you're always sort of stuck in this, uh, you know, mindscape that is being crafted externally. But, you know, it's pretty trippy in the end, you know. Uh, a particularly strong influence of mine, Marshall McLuhan, some people might know him. He's a Canadian philosopher and an essential figure in the world of media studies. Theorized that hallucinogenic drugs were chemical simulations of an electric environment. You know, it was a method of achieving empathy with our penetrating electric environment. An environment that in itself is a drugless inner trip. Yet, with the advent of our current form of media, we've almost reversed it towards an electric simulation of a chemical environment. You know, we're, we're stimulating these aspects of ourselves through electronic means. Uh, and I, I find that pretty fascinating. Um, and, and with the advent of our current form of media, you know, it, it's almost inevitable. You know, a common thought, you know, is that an obsession with said environment is delusional, simply a tailored hallucination for the user. But, you know, for those who are involved heavily involved, you know how real these experiences can be and that real relationships spawn from these environments. You know, personally, as someone who loves video games and interactive media in general, I can attest to the immersion of these experiences. Like, like I think about that a lot. Like, there's several games that I've, I've spent, you know, years playing. And some of them, I wouldn't even necessarily call them 
you know, immersive in a sense, you know, it's not like virtual reality, you know, I think uh, what comes to mind is, you know, I played League of Legends for maybe like six years, you know, it's not like I'm going into the, you know, the map that I'm playing on, you know, feeling like I'm inside it. But what is really cool is, you know, I grew closer to friends through those experiences, you know, winning or losing, uh, you know, those up and up and down experiences. You know, I, I was even banned, you know, because of you know, some pretty heinous language that I was saying. And that had a very real effect on me. It's like, wow, maybe I should, you know, dial it back. Maybe I need to look critically at myself. You know, it's like I wasted a lot of money. Uh, waste a lot of time on an account that I no longer have. Um, but that but that was so interesting. Like something that wasn't necessarily real had gotten me so emotional and angry. Um, but also at the same time kept me coming back because I, you know, I wanted to improve. And like that's something that's almost, that that's how people operate in real life. And to have that happening in a virtual environment is pretty incredible. And I mean, social media really, I think, proves this point is that we've gotten to a point where it's almost hard to divide the, you know, the real and social media. Everything is so intertwined nowadays. Uh, you know, I find that incredibly fascinating. And what's even cooler is this book, you know, was written in like 1995. And all of this stuff feels incredibly applicable to today. And so, you know, that's why I'm super excited to, you know, dive into this book and really, you know, piece it together, you know, because I, I have a lot of, you know, personal opinions about the current situation. And so it's really nice to find a text that articulates it incredibly well. And, I, you know, I'm for those who are listening, who's made it this far, you know, I'm excited to take you along that journey as well. But yeah, uh, you know, Derry throughout this chapter really doesn't shy from the fact that this sort of ability to create a digital world that people can be a part of and feel genuine human emotion and solidarity is almost magical. And, you know, throughout it all, he doesn't shy away from this sort of magical illusion, even going so far as to call computer programmers magicians in a sense. You know, and I, I think it's an adept analogy is, you know, programmers exhibit a sort of wizardry, you know, they're directly interfacing with the, you know, the digital world, manipulating it imagistically through incantations that summon a response from the computers, which in turn summon a response from the user, often almost telekinetically through the wires woven beneath the ground, you know, it's like, like people, you know, first thing that comes to my head is like, you know, exercise gurus, you know, it's like, yeah, they probably would work out normally, but because they have a large following, they're more likely to go out and, you know, film themselves doing workouts or film themselves running. And, and, and also if people are seeing that on their phone, then they might be also become more inclined to run themselves or do those workouts. And that's sort of like, it's not like a person to person thing. It's totally through the airwaves compelling people to do certain things. 
And I mean, that that can go from something innocent like that to something, you know, horrific. You know, I, I personally found, you know, the January 6th uh, Capitol rise pretty horrific. And I know that that was a sort of, you know, event rooted in an Internet belief system, uh, you know, from QAnon to, you know, Trump and his uh dictating of things through, you know, Twitter and just videoed speeches and all these kinds of things that like anybody that is able to sort of take control of the narrative in that way. And I know almost like a shamanic way being able to, you know, use the yeah, a puppet master in a way. I, like, that's kind of how I see it, too. It's like, through the actual wires of the internet, they're able to create a sort of marionette show of people to engage in different things. I find it, I just find that incredibly fascinating, you know. And I think, like, this connectivity kind of goes to this next point that I, I'm thinking of, you know is the notion of the Gaia hypothesis. You know, this this was initially pro- proposed in a technological sense by Douglas Rushkoff, an American writer known for his association with cyberpunk culture and advocacy of open source solutions to social problems. Uh, he used the Gaia hypothesis as inspiration for his idea that the planet may become self-aware, the planet itself, due to the wiring of the world through these digital communications networks. And quoting the computer scientists M.S. Miller and K. Eric Drexler, these systems can encourage the development of intelligent software programs, but there is also a sense in which these systems themselves will become intelligent. And, you know, hearkening back to McLuhan, uh, the Canadian philosopher, he observed that this, this psychic convergence facilitated by electronic media could create the universality of consciousness foreseen by Dante when he predicted that men would continue as no more than broken fragments until they reunified into an inclusive consciousness. You know, in a Christian sense, this is merely a new interpretation of the mystical body of Christ, and Christ, after all, is the ultimate extension of man. And these are still McLuhan's words. He was he was a Catholic man, so he had a lot of, you know, Christian influence. But continuing his quote, he ex- he expected to see the coming decades transform the planet into an art form. The new man linked in a cosmic harmony, he transcends time and space, will himself become an organic art form. There is a long road ahead and the stars are only way stations, but we have begun the journey. And you know that, that idea that not only will the system sort of become an art form that are se- like we ourselves are going to become art forms through this sort of connective thing. It's so true. I think like nowadays we see that being an artist, you know, a musician is an incredibly profitable venture. And I think people are always thinking about to how to artistically represent themselves. I mean, fashion is a huge thing. And I think like self-expression in general has grown to an incredible extent. You know, it's like, it's not just, like, oh, I like these clothes, you know, it's like, oh, I want to dye my hair different colors. Oh, I want to, you know, get piercings. I want to 
you know, play with my identity, you know, what, what is it aesthetic, you know, it's not just what's external, but internal. And how do you externalize that internal world that you've created for yourself? Uh, and like, especially with that notion of identity and that internal thing, I think that that, that offers rules to connections as well. That people are becoming increasingly linked together based on these, you know, identity frameworks that they have. Uh, and like, obviously we've seen different ones come about, but also different ones fall to the wayside. Uh, and in general, I think it has become extremely global. I mean, like current events wise, like Ukraine and Russia situation, like there's the overwhelming global solidarity I think, you know, obviously I get a pretty Western-centric view. It, it almost feels unavoidable, um, you know, being in the West because it's propaganda on both sides. But, like, I still think, you know, I would say a majority of people, you know, are outpouring their support for the Ukrainian people. And, like, pro you know, I, I didn't live in the past, and so I can't really know. But to me, it's, it would seem that, like, you wouldn't really be able to develop a true opinion, see the what's happening on the ground. So it was, back then it was completely dictated, you know, by the government or the media outlets, you know. And it still is to a sense, in a sense, but, like, it's like you have people on the ground in the Ukrainian people taking videos, posting them. It, you know, it's decentralized. It, it just shows the decentralized nature of this in that people who have certain opinions can say them regardless of what somebody tells them to say, you know? Like, I I mean, even on the other end, like, I know that, like, like I'm interested in, like, socialist, socialism and all those kinds of things. You know, and that is a very wide field, you know. You could have just simple, like, I want, you know, democracy at work, you know. Or you have, like, full people, communists, you know, that they think that, you know, Putin is a communist and that they think he, it's anti-imperial. And, like, like, people in America wouldn't have had those opinions back then and probably weren't allowed to have those opinions back then. But now, because of the Internet, we're kind of people are able to be subject to anything, you know, and are able to make themselves subjects in whatever way they want. And there's a level of freedom to that, you know, but I, I digress. I'm kind of rambling a bit. I'll continue. But the overall enterprise of this connectivity and like what I was saying about identity is that most of this has been sort of carried out by progressives, multiculturalists, post-structuralists under the rubric of what has been called social constructionism, which states that science, like all cultural phenomena is socially determined, you know, defined by the biases of the society that produced it and dedicated consciously or not to the validation of that worldview. And when it was talking about the, you know, the idea of creating a, a large entity, 
connected entity, sort of like, you know, each of us as internet users are, you know, microorganisms in, in the intelligence of the world. The fact that we're like creating it in a sense, in a unified way, it kind of harkens in an ironic way to sort of creationism, you know, that we're able to develop a conscious entity ourselves. You know, it's like maybe we don't become God, but we create God. And we think about that, you know, with AI and all those things too. I think we're almost afraid that maybe we're creating something too intelligent, more intelligent than we could ever imagine. And I think like that notion that we're in imminently approaching the ability to create universes, if we haven't already, lends to the idea that we are on the cusp of a godlike power, you know, being able to even create God. The ability to create life and forms that even biologically aren't possible. This, the, that line that we are inevitably going to cross, in my opinion, it sort of embodies this sort of anxiety we have around you know, the meaning of things. It's like, that's where creation comes from. That's where it's sort of like trying to make a mark and have a reason and a meaning to live. And so in an increasingly connected thing, it becomes almost more evident, like what matters. And it seems like it's those connections and we want to sort of bring those connections together, you know. But yeah, I'm going to sort of like flip through the chapters a bit because, you know, I've kind of gotten through my script, but I don't think I'm really done, you know. Um, and I'm also kind of, this is my first time going through this, so bear with me. But the, the ability for people to, you know, reach each other, it's, it's also like it, it seems very bureaucratic in nature, you know, like their hierarchies of like telecom companies and all those things. But at the same time, it's so anti-bureaucratic. Everybody wants to have a voice and on some level does have a voice. Obviously, it's sort of like how you reach people. I mean, that's something that I'm thinking about right now, you know, like I might be just talking into the void, but, you know, I know that some people are listening, you know, likely, you know, family and friends. And hopefully, you know, other people. And I think that, to me, I see it as something, you know, back in the day, you probably, in order to be able to be heard, you had to find a platform, a literal platform, that would allow you to talk. But now, it's almost like you have the platform the platform is free obviously there's you know cons to anything but you know anchor <laughs> shout out shout out anchor fm by spotify <laughs> it was so easy you know it's like you know i'm also a musician and i had to go through all these external services just to even like get my music on spotify and i feel like i'm you know, beholden to so many different like rules and regulations just to produce art and release art on, on Spotify, yet being able to 
produce a podcast is incredibly easy. It was so easy. And, you know, that's a testament. You know, if you're listening and you want to create a podcast, it's really easy. Like, use Anchor. (laughs) I'm not sponsored at all. You know, maybe sometime in the future I will be. But I definitely can attest to the sort of value of a service like this for people to say what they want to say regardless of what the system wants you to say. And I think that's a that's a very anti-bureaucratic thing. And it's, it's such a powerful thing. But yeah, I mean, I'm going to kind of just ramble on some of my own topics because I'm also thinking about Starlink with Elon Musk. Uh, that was something that recently I found extremely fascinating is like we've almost even moved beyond the sort of wired nature of it that it's it's moving through the air through the airwaves that like we can provide internet to places that previously it had been unable to reach because of you know territorial reasons i mean that's like starlink elon sending those terminals to ukraine so they are able to use the internet without those sort of initial things like towers and all that stuff. And that's, that's so incredible. You know, like I'm not the biggest Elon Musk fan at all, but like, that's something that I, in the vein of this context, like the Gaia hypothesis, it's like you have these floating entities in the sky that allow humans on the ground to sort of connect with one another you know that's been around a a little bit with satellites and all that kind of stuff but like this is explicitly you know global communication and global communication as you know i've discussed it, it inevitably breeds a global consciousness and global consciousness is something that i'm i'm just utterly fascinated with and like I, I know it now, like there's so many things that I'm aware of as an internet user that I would not have been aware of had I not had this ability, this, you know, privilege to interact with this technology and stuff like that. You know, in this it, it, earlier when in the book they were talking about how you had to be rich to get all these technologically savvy things, the computers, you know, the cameras. You know, it's like now you can get a phone for like $200, $300. It's still expensive. Not everybody can afford that. But like in America and like a lot of the world, people have phones. And that kind of blends all of it together. You know, you can text, you can call, you can take videos, you can record. is Literally anything. And... That ability to get those sorts of technologies into the hands of everybody, it's inevitably going to, you know, create conflict, but at the same time, you know, bring people together for better or for worse. And, like, that's something that I'm, you know, really interested in. And I think, like, that sort of empathetic connection that comes from it it makes me think of the the McLuhan stuff too about how it's almost like hallucinatory 
empathy. You know, I think about my own experiences with LSD that like, I've always felt more connected to people. I've wanted to care for others. And I've, I've had that exact same feeling arise from, you know, hearing people tell stories through the internet, you know, like I may not know about the play of different people had I not been exposed to it through these, you know, visual and auditory hallucinations that travel through these underground wires or through the fucking sky. Um, and, you know, overall, you know, this chapter is pretty hefty with the woo-woo stuff. But, you know, it definitely bridges the ways that technology has become connected to this exact same mystical ideas that humans have been pondering for millennia. And I, I think it's like, yes, technology has a lot of negatives in a sense, and we're still, you know, becoming aware of them day by day. But it would be, you know, foolish to just discredit all of it because of that. Because there's so many things that, it, like, we have become aware of those negatives due to the positives. And so, that, that you know, first episode, you know, I'm learning how to parse through a book, how to review a book. I want to, you know, moving forward, I also want to dive deeper into maybe a little more of the text. Maybe give you all more quotes. Um, but in the end, I think it was really cool. I think the idea of, you know, jacking in that we've, we've plugged into something that it almost feels like we can't get out of. And is it a good idea to get out of it? You know, it's like, it, it was interesting. And it actually makes me think. He was, there was people saying that the sort of tech-focused people was making them less subversive. And I think almost nowadays it's reversed, you know. Because I think about the times that I'm like, ah, I'm going to get off social media. Like, that's almost a faster way to not doing anything when you just are, you know, completely oblivious to things. But as soon as, like, I hop on the internet, I'm like, wow, that made me mad. Like, that ma I care about that or care about what happened to people. And that's why I think it's, it's all about, it's a tool. It's a tool that's been graced to us, you know, through a variety of different means, you know, from the 60s to the 70s to the 90s to now. It, it, it's something that we're just now starting to see the true results of what interconnectivity means. Um, but yeah, thank you for listening. That was episode one, chapter one. I, uh, the next chapter is called the metal machine music. Cyberpunk meets the black leather synth rockers. That seems like it's going to be pretty cool. I know I like Billy Idol and stuff like that. Overall, I like this book. has been really fun to read. I would definitely suggest you pick it up. Uh, you know, I'd probably make the context of this these episodes a little make a little more sense. And, you know, thank you for listening to me ramble about it and ramble about my thoughts about a lot of different stuff. But, yeah, 
Hope to see you again next episode. Thank you for listening.